Welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science, sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Daniel Barron, I'm your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Neuroskeptic. So Neuroskeptic's a long-standing or long-time science blogger for Discover Magazine. I guess more accurately, I should say he was a solo blogger, like he had his own website, and then Science or Discover Magazine picked up his blog. And I actually just tried to find out how long he'd been on Discover Magazine, and they're only showing about 30 of his most recent pieces there. Um, but needless to say, Neuroskeptic's a big deal. I don't know any scientists who have a Twitter account that don't follow Neuroskeptic. And he has 190,000 followers on Twitter. And he has both the most insightful and the most hilarious tweets about science. And so this conversation with Neuroskeptic was a long time in the making. Um, I, as a uh, medical student, had started writing for Scientific American, and I had written a piece at the beginning of my psychiatry residency uh, about uh, the tension between neuroscience and specifically psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And uh, <laughs> we ended up having a brief polemic about it, which I thought was just completely delightful. And um, uh, at a conference, I guess it was probably uh, almost a year after that, a mutual friend invited us both to dinner and uh, Neuroskept and I grabbed a drink afterwards and had such a wonderful time discussing writing and science and just, you know, kind of the works. How do you move from academia and how do you write for the popular audience as a scientist, still trying to be a scientist and engaging academia? Uh, he has a wealth of information and... Uh, since then, he's been extremely helpful uh, with a few different projects I'm working on. And so uh, I was really fortunate to ping him when I was in London researching a book. And so two tidbits of information will be important if you're going to stay with us in our conversation there. So first of all, it is a little bit noisy in this episode. Um, our conversation took place in a pub down the street from where I was giving a talk. And the pub wasn't open yet. Uh, but it was completely empty, and so we kind of knocked on the, the door, and the bartender very kindly let us sit in a corner, and so I set up my little recording equipment, and um, so the background sounds that you hear during this episode are the bartender, you know, getting ready for the day. Uh, I should also mention that we recorded this episode the first week in February, so this was just as the coronavirus was beginning to make the news in a, in a really serious way. So we kind of comment on this uh, uh, during our conversation. And so the, the second kind of category of uh, background information is about the generalizability crisis. And so you've probably heard of the reproducibility, replicability crisis, which is the, the well-established observation that scientific studies, uh, if someone tries to replicate or to perform the exact same study using the same methods, the same... Uh, uh, like experimental design and materials, um, they often don't get the same result. And so this is a little bit different from that. So Neuroskeptic and I are discussing a paper that one of our colleagues, Talia Arconi, had uh, recently published on, it was, it was one of the preprint servers. I, I don't recall, I'll link out to it in, in the episode description. Um, but so the generalizability crisis isn't dissimilar from the reproducibility or replicability crisis. The generalizability crisis would be an example of one study using a very specific behavioral task, for example, 
And then from a very specific type of memory task, trying to draw a generalizable conclusion about memory. Uh, so basically this idea that uh, a very specific instance of a behavior doesn't generalize to that category of behavior itself. And so it was a wonderful paper by Tal and uh, Neuroskeptic and I uh, really enjoyed discussing it. I hope you enjoy this episode and here we go. Okay, so I'm here this afternoon with Neuroskeptic and uh, decided to meet in this very nice pub in London, which is perfect, uh, in order to discuss a little bit about science. And so, uh, Neuroskeptic, uh, a lot of people that I've spoken with, we've kind of targeted different facets of science, I've spoken with some science journalists to see how they view the progress of science, how it's reported and understood by the public. And you've been in a position for a long time to be able to assess like what is good science? And you're very outspoken mm. and very rigorous in terms of how you evaluate publications. Mm. So how, how do you do it? How do you decide which, which papers to write about and what's your criteria? Mm. I mean, what is good science, I think, is really a very, is really a very big question. Um, so my own, my blog and my papers that I tweet about, um, that is very much my own personal, my own personal interest. So I wouldn't say that I'm in any way um, sort of focusing on, on, on good science in, in a sort of objective sense. I try to focus on science that's interesting to me. So like an ethical good, like a personal, like good for neuroskeptic? Um, more of... Um, Good in the sense of, I think that this is interesting. And I think that this will be interesting to other people who are working in the, in the field of neuroscience, I think. But, but I mean, that's a, that's a subjective, um, a subjective judgment as to whether something is, is interesting. Um, and I think what's, what is, um, notable about, um, about science is that, an awful lot of um, an awful lot depends on research being perceived as interesting. Hmm. Um, so you could say that. Um, so from one perspective, you could say that science is good if it is uh, true, right? If it's basically it's accurate. Rigorous. So yeah, yeah, rigorous, and if the conclusions are valid, right? Um, but um, if you exclusively take that that view um if you if you say the best science is the most rigorous um and that i think is perfectly sort of justifiable view in some ways um but that kind of um doesn't um doesn't get you to the level of sort of interesting or highly cited or highly influential science um which is what's rewarded under the current under the um, the system in which you know research is published and then it's cited and then H index, and H index, input factor, and then that's what drives uh, grants. Um, and so there's this. You can say that science is good science if it's um, if it's technically rigorous and if it's the results turn out to be replicable. Um, but then 
there's a sort of there's an almost um, like an orthogonal dimension which is sort of uh, completely unrelated to that, which is how interesting is this? Um, so you could have science which is um, really technically just terrible, um, you know, and maybe it's done with a tiny sample, sure. and it's using like very uh, old-fashioned and discredited methods even. Um, and that could be very interesting, though, um, in the sense that it's addressing um, a topic that people find interesting and is making claims that people think are interesting. Sure. Um, so the, interest, the interestingness and the, uh, the technical um, rigorousness are, I would say, almost completely two separate things. So it's almost as if you're putting your finger on an evolutionary pressure in science. Right, so what is fit science? Right, so it's like you're obviously if you're a scientist and yeah. you want to continue producing science to survive, uh, you must have rigorous science. Uh, you also must have interesting science. Otherwise, your funding agencies aren't going to promote it. And that's actually a conversation I was having with an anthropologist friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about how fields progress over time and how the development of the NIH in the U.S. really sculpted a very specific type of science as to be like clinically mm. useful. And that was like a definition of interesting. So do you see that in, do you feel like there are differences in countries in terms of not just what you find interesting, which I assume remains the same no matter what mm. country you know, the authors are from, but like the sorts of science that countries produce? That's a very good question. I mean, um, I would say... Probably not to, to a great extent, because I think science has become, today has become, does seem to have become more um, sort of globalized. Mm. Um, I mean, funding agencies are still based in particular countries, um, but the, the journals are very much international. Oh, so yeah. um, if you want to publish in, let's say, the American, uh, JAMA, you know, the, um, or the British Medical Journal, um, you don't have to be from that country, but you do have to impress. So, so research will be from coming in from all over the world, um, but it's but it's being judged by judged to the same standard. Um, so, I think to a large extent, the same standard of kind of interest has now become um, fairly universal, um, but probably not entirely. So, I think there are still some country specific. Uh, priorities hmm. um, in terms of funding. Um, I mean, so this is not perhaps the best example, but a few years, well, maybe a decade ago um, in the UK, there was um, there was a lot of interest in uh, in psychotherapies for sort of common psychiatric disorders. And there was an initiative called IACT, which I think was improving access, improving access to psychological therapies. And this was a massive thing, um, and was basically about sort of increasing the number of therapists and then increasing the access so more people could access therapy. Um, and it was like a countrywide thing, uh, and that I think probably spurred quite a, quite a bit of research um, 
which was probably very much specific to this country. Hmm. Was that was that a result of like a, a political movement or some lobbying or? I, I think it was a mixture. Yeah, I think there was definitely a political aspect to it. I mean, there, there'd long been a sort of perception that um, people were relying on antidepressants and other medication, uh, that doctors were prescribing it too much, um, that um, it was easier to get access to medication, but it was very hard to get access to therapy because you had like long waiting lists and, and, and so on. Um, and I think that became a political, um, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't really know the kind of, all the details of it. Um, but I think it definitely was a political, um, initiative and then IAPT was brought in and I think that did lead to a kind of, um, uh, uh quite a lot of research, um, based on IAPT or sort of molded by IAPT, um, but then I don't know whether that was ever, that research was ever kind of um, of interest to anyone outside the country. Hmm. I don't know. I remember around the same time, there was a lot of questioning about uh, Psycho Farm in the U.S. I mean, what was that book? Sing No to Prozac or something like that? Uh, it's a pretty famous book that I think came out in the 90s where... Oh, there were quite a few of them. Yeah, that uh, was just the one yeah. that it had another P in it, uh, something in Prozac. Um, and got a lot of traction and got a lot of clinicians thinking about whether they, whether they should start de-prescribing or use other modalities. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, maybe another example is like the human genome project where countries kind of establish these priorities and mm -hmm. thereby sculpt science. So I guess that'd be interesting in like a economic way or governmental way. Mm. And now, I mean, and just so... I was reading today that there have been 50 papers published about the coronavirus oh, wow. since it was discovered. And it was only discovered like a month ago. So, and he's like fully peer reviewed. Wow. So someone's been had this data. fast tracking. <laughs> oh no, I think that, and I think they've, they've done the whole, like they've collected the data and, and written it up and submitted it. And then obviously the journals must have like fast tracked finding reviewers. Um, and that's, I guess, is an example of a national, and I think that most of that is from China. Hmm. So that's an example of a kind of a national priority, but that, that one pro presumably will not last, you know, more than a few months, hopefully, if the outbreak is we hope, yeah. contained. Yeah. Um, but that, I guess, is an example of um, how those priorities can happen very quickly. Hmm. Yeah, the HIV and AIDS crisis was something similar. I'd spoken with a, a journalist who had been the lead anchor of her um, NBC who described that period of time when people were campaigning at the FDA and the NIH to do more research and to pass these drugs. I think that's pretty fascinating. Mm. Back to neuroscience. Mm. I, I, you know, both of our uh, shared, shared interests here. Um, I'm curious how how you can keep abreast of the entire field. Like, so how do you choose which things to write about? Like, what, what do you think is interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely can't keep abreast of everything sure. by any means. I mean, I, and I do sort of focus on 
what I find to be interesting. And as to why do I find certain things interesting, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've never, I, I'm not sure is the answer. I think it's just a certain thing. I'm imagining are, you at your computer is like, do you, do you chuckle to yourself if you read a paper that's really fun? Uh, like, I, I feel like you must. I, I chuckle <laughs> when I read some of your tweets. I do that, yeah. yeah. So you're like, oh, this is funny. And then like the pieces that you really want to expound upon or you know, uh, mm. interact with in some way, then you do find something challenging in them or... Uh... I think there are, different, there are different reasons why something is interesting. So it could be interesting because it's saying something very new. Um, but it also it could be that it's, it's a study which is um, challenging what's already sort of challenging or debating what's already known. Mm. Um, or it can just be interesting in, in terms of the sort of the perspective it adds, like it's taking a kind of uh, a kind of roundabout or new look at things. Yeah. What's an example? I think it'd be fun to talk about. Okay, so actually a good example was the last paper I blogged about, um, which was the, um, so basically there's a lot of interest in these rare cases of people who are born and they seem to be um, like completely normal um, and they don't have any obvious uh, deficits. Um, but then for some reason they have an MRI scan or another brain type of brain scan and they turn out to have like apparently a huge hole sort of in their brain. And this is caused by hydrocephalus, and it's basically created a kind of fluid hole, like in, in the middle of where their brain normally would be. And on the scan, it looks like there's just like a huge hole and like a tiny bit of brain sort of squished around the edge of the of the skull, right? But they but they're able to function very well. And there have been three or four of those cases, um, and they were quite famous. Um, and I think. <laughs> People, they often get called like the the man with no brain, which is not obviously not true because they do have <laughs> there's something quite going a lot on. <laughs> of the brain still there. But um, it certainly is dramatic when you see it. And there was a, an article like, famously called um, "Is your brain really necessary?" Oh. Um, about this, and basically asking like if someone can function so well with so much of their brain missing, uh, like to what extent is the brain actually? Um, actually needed and of course yeah there's a lot we don't know about these cases um, and it, also it's not as if um, it's not like their brain is actually missing necessarily um, I mean some because the, the the way the fluid sort of presses out from the middle and it sort of compresses the other areas there probably is some quite a lot of tissue lost but it doesn't mean that any individual part of the brain is not there. Um, yeah. Or maybe even the functions are mapped to different And the functions areas. could have been mapped, like yeah. A stroke or something. Mm. So um, the paper I blogged about was actually about a similar case, but a rat. So they discovered a rat, and they were doing some study on, like, completely unrelated, like some gene. Uh, they knocked out some gene, and they wanted to study the effect in rats. Um, and so they had some knockout rats and control rats, and most of them were fine. Uh, all of them seemed to be fine. But then when they put them in the MRI scanner, they found out that one of them had a huge, kind of apparently a hole. Hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus, yeah. Um, and it probably wasn't related to the, um, the gene. Well, it, I mean, it may just have happened by chance. It may have been 
related to the gene knockout, but probably not because all the other ones, the knockout rats were fine. Um, but this rat basically showed um, no real deficits. Uh, it could sort of move around and it could do like a learning task. Um, I think it was slightly, showed some anxiety, like slightly above the normal levels. Um, but otherwise it was pretty much fine. So it's kind of a human, um, an interesting human model of, model of this. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it could have all the same genes as its, I don't know, siblings. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sometimes I guess a little bit of tissue just gets stuck and makes a clog or something. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone knows why it happens. Um, and obviously, normally, I think hydrocephalus is, is fairly common, but these are, we're talking about like a very extreme cases where it becomes um, to the extent that, yeah, you look on the scan and you say, well, where's the brain? Right? Or you can yes. just about sort of see like... Wait a second, let's check the scanner. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. But so I like that paper because there's something, there's a lot of interest. There's something sort of inherently interesting about the, um, just like the idea, I guess, of a, a person or an animal like going around and not realizing that it has this sort of dramatic abnormality or it dramatic when you look at it, right? Yeah. But then, in, in terms of functional terms, it doesn't seem to be actually um, affecting them at all. Yeah. Well, it's almost like that. I, I I was taught that you only use like ten percent of your brain or something like that, which you know is of course not true, mm. but mm. it almost makes you feel like that. Uh, like, do it, we yeah, actually exactly. need the entire it's, it's, volume? It's actually um, yeah, like that. Those cases they actually make you think. Well, um, maybe there's some truth in that. Um, and, but they're also of interest, I guess, to um, philosophers. Mm. So there have been, um, I think particularly after the first, I think it was like in the 1980s, after the first one was discovered, there was quite a lot of like discussion about it. And some people were saying, well, maybe um, if this person doesn't have a brain, that's evidence for the soul because then the soul is what's oh, like controlling oh, their body. I didn't yeah. know you were going there. <laughs> oh yeah, no, well, that's where that's where that's where people took it, right? And again, it, it was never actually true that they didn't have a brain because they did have a brain, which was like abnormal one, but it was still a brain. Um, and this, this actually, this paper about the rat was called "Life with No Brain," which again <laughs> it wasn't true. Not, not quite accurate, but it, it, that's what attracted me to the to the paper. To be fair, so it worked. Sort of yeah. clickbait, clickbait headline. Well, so, so that's an interesting point. I've wondered sometimes if uh, more scientists should be more clickbaity, you know, to encourage mm. public engagement, and um, especially in the U.S., where most the majority of science is funded by the government in mm. some fashion, right? So to keep the taxpayer, you know, you know pays for the government interested, mm. like to encourage that sort of science. It sounds like this paper wasn't. Unrigorous that that you're talking about. I haven't heard you say that. It sounded mm. like it was genuinely interesting. Mm, it was definitely interesting. I mean, it was one of these. Um, the title obviously was uh, was misleading. Yeah. <laughs> but the actual paper was was fine as far as I could see. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's just like an N of one paper, so it's just an example, a, sort of a case report of one particular rat. Um, but that's interesting enough. Um, as to whether scientists should be more clickbaity, I mean, I think a lot of them are. Um, 
certain fields seem to be more kind of encouraging of that than others. Such as? Um, so there are certain areas of social psychology, for instance, where um, <laughs> it's very common to have a, um, a title, which is like a little, starts off with like a little joke and then a colon and then like a long explanation of the um, what oh, the joke was what the joke, yeah <laughs> or, or what actually happened in the paper uh. um, so just, so I'm thinking something I mean there are lots of examples but there's like there's a paper called boom headshot and then like <laughs> colon and then it's something like um, effects of violent video game shooting on children's Attitude to firearms, like that kind of oh, thing. Yes. Um, and it's about saying that if you get children to shoot like monsters in the head in a video game, then it makes them more likely to um, play with a real gun or something. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the details. I've heard both sides of that. Mm. Some say yes, some say no. It's a con that, that's a controversial paper. Mm. Um, but certainly, there's like many, many papers like that which have that kind of. Um, uh, the title is kind of uh, attention-grabbing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I think, yeah, you want to make your title... A title's job is to attract attention, really. Yeah. As long as it's doing it... In, as long as it's not inaccurate. That, like, yeah, <clears throat> the life with no brain right, <laughs> is just wrong, right? You can't, sure. And I, I'm surprised that the journal allowed it. Um, but making your work sound interesting, yeah, it's definitely... You should, people should be doing that. Mm. I wonder how much... So I feel like what you've done is you've acted as a liaison for, you know, a lot of good science and then also uh, a debunker of bad science. I, I, that's mm. not the right term, but I think you understand what I mean. So I, I wonder how to get more scientists themselves involved in doing that same sort of work. So that's... Yeah, that's, that's something that a lot of... Well, I've wondered about, and, and other people have have asked me. Um, and I guess my answer is, it's certainly true. I mean, mo many scientists are like are aware of um, bad science in their field, and are already like aware of, and, and are able to point to like the specific flaws with it. So it's, I think it's it's not a matter of um, getting scientists to um, kind of to debunk stuff so much as it's, it's getting them to do it publicly. Oh, um, interesting. So, yeah, huh. so... Um, oh, like have a forum for debate then? Yeah, and actually I think, so PubPeer has done a lot for that, I think. I'm not familiar with that. What, what is uh, okay. it? So PubPeer is a site, it's called PubPeer.com, and basically you go there and you can, there's like a... Um, it's sort of organized by paper. So there's every every paper that's on PubMed, like you can have a, like a discussion about it. So you can go to um, like the page for a particular paper and there might be comments on it or you can start the comments. But um, it's, it's, it's an anonymous forum. Or, or no, it's, it's anonymous by default. I think some people uh, you're able to post under your name if you if you wish, but it's an anonymous by default. Mm. 
and I think Papier has done a lot for making um, making people more willing to, to publicly debunk things. Um, because I think, uh, as I say, a lot of people have, are perfectly aware of when you have um, sort of shoddy or terrible science. Um, and there are, there are many stories I've heard of people who have uh, who tried to replicate a previous study and failed to replicate, um, and then they just didn't like they just moved on to something else, but they, they didn't publish that or um, the file drawer thing, or yeah. Um, and that I think it's also changing now because there's more of a um, more of an acceptance of um, replication studies and also more of an understanding that it's. Uh, important uh, that often studies are um, are not going to be replicated. Like um, there's more of an understanding now that if you fail to replicate something, it might be um, because that study was wrong in the first place, rather than on your because you have like screwed up in some way. Sure. Mm. Well, the conditions have to be uh, just yeah. so every time. So. What do you think about the generalizability crisis? <laughs> um, so, this is something which um, I'm still uh, still thinking about. I have to say, um, I mean, I think it's a huge uh, and very important like uh, issue, um, but I still haven't personally sort of worked through it in my mind to know exactly <laughs> what yeah, to make yeah. about it. Um, but I think. Um, I think the, the kind of the fundamental point um, it, that um, replicability. So the point, as I see, it, is replicability is not enough. Basically, you're saying you can have a, you can have an effect which is very replicable if you get the conditions to be exactly right. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's um, it will generalize to other conditions. And if we talk about uh, an effect, and we and we say, for instance, oh, I don't know, um, uh, well, the example that was used was um, if you talk about a memory, if you so if you talk about something that just happened to you, your memory, um, your ability to recognize um, like details of. Um, the scene is reduced. Hmm. So it's, I think they called it verbal overshadowing. Right. Yeah. So if you talk about something, then that kind of makes it into a verbal memory. And um, you reprocess it and yeah. it down. Yeah. And then that actually makes it less, makes the visual details less accessible. Hmm. And which has a lot of practical implications um, for like eyewitnesses and so forth. Yeah. Um, and the original study of this, um, it seems, had uh, two stimuli, essentially. So the stimuli were movies, and they only show participants one of two different movies, if, I, if I'm remember, remembering this correctly. Um, and the question is, will that then generalize to other stimuli? Um, and because we can say, I mean, we, we would normally talk about this, we'd say, um, we say something like, um, if, you view, if you view a movie and then 
talk about the events that happened, that will impair your ability to recognize the details, right? So we say a movie, right? If you, if you view a movie, but we actually only tested two particular movies, right? right. And there are an infinite number of movies that we could Countless have... situations there. Yeah, there's an infinite number yeah. of movies that you could have used. Um, and if you only use two, okay, and two is obviously, um, two is kind of obviously a low number, but let's say you used 100, right? right? But then that's still, like, you've used 100 different uh -huh. movies, um, but there's an infinite number of movies you could have used. Um, so is it justified to assume that that will generalize to other movies? Right. And I think the question I have is, intuitively, it seems like there must come a point where you can generalize. Intuitively, it seems you can say, well, I've, I have used enough stimuli that I am covering like uh, the whole range of stimuli that would normally be encountered in real life. And okay, there are weird stimuli, in an infinite number of weird stimuli you could cook up. But intuitively it seems like there should be a way to cover the spectrum of really of stimuli that are likely to occur. But it's actually very hard, I think, to to formalize that and say and say this is really um, this is a generalizable finding because I've used um, a wide enough variety of stimuli, and it seems like we should be able to say that. But is there a way that we can? Um, put a number on it, for instance. So, I mean, with replicability, you could put a number on it. You can say, oh, look, I've replicated this study uh, five times with um, 5,000 people in each study. Um, sure. and yeah. So then you can put like a p-value or a base factor on it, and you say, um, that's how um, certain I am that this effect is real under these conditions. Um, and you can actually put a number on it, but with generalizability, Is there any way to put a number on that? Well, maybe, uh, making me wonder whether the concept of generalizability itself is poorly framed, right? So the idea of generalizability is that I've discovered something that's true in like, some absolute sense. Like, if I hold this glass and let go over the floor, it will fall and crack, you know, on the ground. Yeah. So, like, I could say that that's a generalizable thing. Mm. Right? And so I wonder if our statistics aren't set up to do that anyway. Like, we're not trying to measure causality in almost all of our analyses. And, like, is maybe generalizability people are interpreting as being causal in some way when it's really not? I think the concept of generalizability, in theory, could be applied to purely correlational claims mm. but in but in practice it does tend to be um, it almost always is causal claims that are being talked about mm. um, and I think the, the the funny thing about about um, making a generalizable claim mm. 
is that um, if I say, for instance, um, well, so actually, this is this is one thing that um, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about in response to the um, the generalizability crisis preprint is that it is something which we do every day, and not just in science. So you give you get the example of if I hold a glass and drop it, it will break, right? And I would say that that, that is a claim which will generalize um, to most glasses. Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. maybe, maybe there are some, like... Plastic. Plastic, okay, well, that's not a glass, though. I would say uh, that's, a, okay. that's a plastic cup. Sure. Um, but this is the thing, right? Because actually, some people would say that it was a glass, and then... Um, and then the claim wouldn't generalize to that group. Um, but if you drop a glass, and also if you drop a glass from a very small height, it's not going to break. Um, and if you drop a glass onto a pillow, a, a pillow or a trampoline, <laughs> it's not going to break. Right? So if I say, um, don't drop that glass, it'll break, I'm making a claim which is... On the, on the face of it, a very general claim. But I think in reality, I'm not making a general claim. I'm making a kind of claim about things that would, things that are plausible, unlikely to happen, right? Yeah. Um, it's so, a probabilistic claim under yeah, certain circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Well, sort of under realistic circumstances. So if I say, don't drop a glass, it'll break, I'm not thinking about someone dropping it from a height of one centimeter sure because why would, because that wouldn't that wouldn't happen or at least it's less likely to happen or it wouldn't be a notable event if it did happen hmm. so in some way i'm implicitly referring to a kind of space of events that actually would happen right and that's the space i can generalize over and i think that's also true maybe in science um that many claims are generalizable, but only over a, the narrow sort of space of realistic and non-contrived uh, or non-abnormal um, scenarios. Hmm. But you see, as I say, it's very much a it's a very intuitive argument. It's not rigorous. Um, what I've just said, and it's you can't say. Uh, for sure that a claim is going to generalize. Um, so I think there is perhaps a crisis, hmm. uh, certainly in, in the fact that we can never be sure that we've got a generalizable claim. Hmm. I've wondered also if some of the questions that we ask of our statistics aren't possible to be answered. And so, so like something, something I think about as, as a clinician is the mapping of like diseases or symptoms all the way back to genes, hmm. right? So there are so many intermediary steps, so like these causal steps, genes, molecules, circuits, blah, blah, all the way to the expression of behavior that I then interpret as a symptom. Hmm. And I wonder sometimes whether we're asking too much of our tools. Uh, like, can, can a statistical test really find true, like, correlation that is generalizable between mm. one symptom or one diagnosis and a million genes or something, yeah, a million uh, uh, SNPs. I mean, it, I think that, so that, that actually comes back to um, 
I guess, the question of the plastic glass, because if you're talking about a construct like, it is, like a, a psychiatric disorder, which is something that can't sort of directly be measured, but it's, it's, a, it's a concept that we have, um, then whether we can ever generalize about that will depend on whether that construct is actually itself a valid one. Um, and that would mean it has to be very carefully defined? It have to be right. Okay. So if you said, um, if you decided that every, you know, every, um, everything that holds a drinking liquid is a glass, then a Coke can would also be a glass. Yeah. And if you had that kind of a very broad view of glasses, then most glasses would not break <laughs> when, you, when you drop them, right? Because right. most things are not made of... Uh, are made of plastic or metal and they're not going to break. Right. Um, so so then, you would think it was falsified if you tried right, to exactly, reproduce yeah, that based yeah. on the... Yeah, then you would think that you would, you've got a non-generalizable claim that glasses break when you drop them. Um, even though, in fact, in the kind of original meaning, it, it was perhaps falsifiable. Hmm. It was perhaps um, valid. Valid, yeah. Well, thanks for chatting with me. Oh, no. I really appreciate yeah. your time, especially uh, meeting in the middle of the day like this. Oh, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to Neuroskeptic for being on the podcast and for that very kind bartender for letting us record in his empty pub. Um, you can find Neuroskeptic on Twitter at neuro underscore skeptic. Again, that's at neuro underscore skeptic. You can also find him, of course, at discovermagazine.com, where many of his recent blog posts are, are listed. Uh, thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast, to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, and to Ryan McAvoy for his awesome help sound editing. And a special thanks to you for listening. Again, my name is Daniel Barron, and I've been your host, and I'll see you next time here on Science at All.